If you would go with me in your Bibles to Exodus 32. Exodus 32, verses 7 to 14. We continue <clears throat> to work our way through Exodus, and we have reached a very sad day in the history of Israel. This is a, an incredibly low point as we think about the history of God's people. Last week, we started looking at the story of the golden calf, one that you are probably familiar with if you spent any time in church. This is one of those famous scenes from the Bible. If you had a, a storybook Bible, this would be one of those that would certainly be featured, this golden calf incident. The people call for, construct, and worship a golden calf idol while Moses is up on the mountain with Yahweh. What a stark contrast that Moses is with the living God. He's with the true God. He is taking in the glory of the immortal, invisible, eternal one. And the people are down at the base of the mountain constructing a, an, a metal image that they will then bow down and worship. Through impatience, discontent, and fear, they go to Aaron. Remember that Aaron is Moses' brother, and Moses has left him in charge. They go to Aaron and ask that he make gods who shall go before them. Uh, This golden calf is to function as a, a warrior, a conqueror. The deity symbolized or embodied in this golden calf is to, in their minds, fight their battles, bring the kind of saving work that they've already experienced. Uh, He's the one who will uh, provide for them. It will provide for them. It will fight their battles, so they think. And it's through this impatience and discontent and fear that they go to Aaron And ask for this. And one of the things I mentioned last week is that we really are seeing, I think, in that very first verse of chapter 32, we really are seeing the soil for idolatry and even apostasy. The soil of discontent, of fear, and of impatience, of uh, an unwillingness to wait on the Lord, an unwillingness to wait on the God of our salvation, to wait on the Lord to carry out his purposes in his way with his manner of revelation. So we see the soil of this idolatry being present there. And as I said last week, you can track this in your own life if you're honest. As you go through and you look at your life Those low moments, those moments when uh, things are are rough and hard, those moments when there is, is much temptation towards dissatisfaction with life, towards ingratitude and discontent. It's in those moments where Satan works and tempts us to turn towards other so called gods, just to forget the Lord, to turn away from Him. So they go to Aaron and they ask for this and Aaron acquiesces. He calls for golden earrings. That will be the means by which he will construct this idol. He calls for the earrings and he fashions an idol. 
At which point the people say, and this is, this is a, a, a horrific verse, they say in verse 4, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. They have seen no such God save them. They've seen the glory of the Lord manifested in a cloud that has led them by day and by night. They've seen God's amazing, awesome glory on the mountain as the mountain has shaken because of his fiery presence. But they have seen no rinky-dink calf do anything for them. And yet they say in verse 4, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Then Aaron builds an altar in front of it, and the people offer sacrifices to it. They commune with it through a meal. They've, They've come to understand that there is this communing element. In sacrifices, there's this communing element. And so they make the sacrifices and with the peace offerings or the fellowship offerings, they partake in this communion meal or some sort of covenantal meal with this metal inanimate object. They eat and they drink and then they participate, participate in some form of wild revelry that appears to have at least somewhat of a sexual nature. It appears to some degree to, to be sexual, but uh, we, we could overdo that. We could see this. It, one of the things we need to recognize is that when the golden calf incident is reflected on later in Scripture, the emphasis is on the idolatry, the idolatry, the idolatry. And so whatever sexual sin is involved here in this playful revelry, is part and parcel of this uh, reckless abandon after this false god. They are participating in pagan worship, I think is how we are meant to understand that. With all that that entails here, seemingly including sexual elements. This is a sad day indeed. A tragic, unholy evil rebellion against the Lord, against the God of the Hebrews. The Hebrews going after this idol in rebellion against the God of the Hebrews. And all of this occurs against the backdrop of God's glorious and gracious salvation, which is just a matter of months old. God has just saved his people. This is not years later or decades later. This is literally within a couple of months. Within a few months, God has done this amazing salvation. Remember the plagues, the parting of the sea, and all the provision in the wilderness. God has just done all of this gloriously and graciously for his people. Let me say this to us about the nature of sin. The sinfulness of sin can only be perceived against the backdrop of God's goodness. Uh, The reason that the world has such a small view of sin and the reason that many Christians will fall into a small view of sin, sin becomes mistakes and so forth. The reason 
is because there is not a vivid, strong, large background of God's goodness to view it within. Let me say it this way. If you parachute into Genesis 3, it seems a bit silly. I mean, it's a fruit. What's the big deal? Is this really that bad? I mean, kicked out of the garden? What about sort of like a minor spanking, like, like a pop on the hand or something like that? But to, to kick them out of the garden and what will happen in childbirth to, to, the, to the woman and, and the relationship between Adam and Eve and, and the ground being cursed from this point forward and they're going to die, all of that. And then separated from God, driven out of the garden. Well, you may have that view if you parachute into Genesis 3. But if you read Genesis 3 in light of Genesis 1 and 2, you begin to see the gravity of sin and the weight of what happened there. Yes, with the bite of the fruit. And the same is true here and in our lives. When we see all of God's goodness and all that God has done for us and all that God is as our Savior, as our Redeemer and our Maker, we will hate sin, but we will view sin trivially and in a tiny way when we don't see God's glorious salvation, when we don't have the gospel of His grace in view, when we don't see what He has done for us in our Lives. This is a heinous act of evil. God has powerfully rescued his people from slavery and destroyed their enemies. He has been faithful to his promises and gracious towards their grumbling. He has provided food and water. He has given them his law. And he has entered into covenant with them at Mount Sinai and even on Mount Sinai is laying out the means by which he will continue to relate to them in spite of their sinfulness. Incredible grace. And in fact, as we think about this giving of the law and the covenant, Moses is on the mountain with the express purpose of receiving from God the stone tablets with the Ten Commandments or covenant stipulations inscribed on them by God himself. This is the reason he's on the mountain. Now, of course, we know that while he's on the mountain, God reveals the tabernacle instructions to him. But we need to remember the reason he's on the mountain in the first place. And that is stated in Exodus 24, verse 12. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. It is this law, along with the laws that flow from them, that the people have just formally committed to keep. Not some sort of, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll obey God. Yeah, Yahweh will be our God. They have formally professed their confidence in God. And they have formally, as a nation, as a people, committed themselves to obey God's law as embodied in the Ten Commandments and applied in the Book of the Covenant. 
And so we read this in chapter 24, verse 7. Then he took the book of the covenant, this is Moses, and he read it in the hearing of the people. Over two million people receiving these words. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. They have formally committed their way to the Lord just recently, within the last 40 days. Last week, we began looking at this golden calf incident with the first six verses of chapter 32. And we can divide this chapter into three major sections or scenes. And as I got into this, you know, I realized how complex and, and, and just intricate this account of the golden calf incident is. And so really it, it unfolds in these three scenes. You could lay them out this way, construction, conversation, and confrontation. As you think about the structure of Exodus 32. So first, the construction and worship of the idol itself, and that's what we looked at last week, that construction of the idol, verses 1 to 6. And then second, the conversation between God and Moses about the incident, which is, which is what we're going to look at today in verses 7 to 14. And then finally, the confrontation that ensues when Moses goes down the mountain to Israel, and it gets intense at the bottom of the mountain. And this last scene, this confrontation, leads all the way up to the plague that the Lord will send on his people at the end of the chapter. And so we read this, the very last verse of chapter 32 of the golden calf incident, verse 35, then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron made. By the way, Aaron will later say that the calf just jumped out of the fire, which is so strange. I mean, children don't even say that sort of thing, right? Uh, But he will say that, and of course, the Lord wants to make very clear, no, 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 Aaron made it. Aaron, you made it. And so we get that in verse 35. The Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron made. So today... We're in that second section, that second scene, the conversation between God and Moses at the top of the mountain after the people have made and worshiped this golden calf idol down at the base of the mountain. So the title for the sermon this morning is Intercession and Grace. Last week we had an unholy rebellion against the Lord, and now this week we're going to see intercession and grace. Grace. Once again, just filling out for us the character of our God, helping us to understand who is this God that we're here to worship this morning? Who is this God we talk to when we pray? Who is this God we're studying about when we open up the Bible, when we encourage our brothers and sisters? We're seeing once again the glory of his gracious character. And so intercession and grace. So if you would stand with me as we read, as we read God's word together. Chapter 32, verses 7 to 14. This is the word of God. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. 
They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self And said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring. And they shall inherit it forever. Verse 14. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's pray and ask that the Lord would illuminate his word in the preaching and hearing of it. And that... He would work in each of our hearts. Father, we are thankful for this time to gather in the name of Jesus, our Savior, our Lord. We thank you that you have graciously redeemed us by his precious blood. We thank you, God, that you have been faithful to your promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Namely, Lord, that you have been faithful to your promise that you would bless all the families of the earth through him through his offspring. Lord, we praise you this morning that we are constituted as a people solely because of this offspring of Abraham, Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ. We praise you that this Jesus is indeed the Christ. And that through him, through believing in his Name through believing that he is the Christ, the Son of God, we have eternal life. God, we praise you that you have saved us. And Lord, I pray for anyone in this room right now or anyone who may be watching, Lord God, that you would bring salvation if they do not know you. Lord, if they still uh, see their sins merely as uh, just imperfections, um, mistakes, lapses in judgment, Lord, that the awfulness of sin against you, their maker, would become clear. Lord, that the law would function to condemn them in their sins and that they would flee to Christ and find redemption from all those sins through his death and resurrection. Father, we thank you for your spirit. As we are gathered here this morning, we recognize that everything we are doing is by your Spirit. As you gift us and as you are present in us and among us, Lord, we praise you that you have given your Spirit so freely to your people and and that we are little temples of the living God because of the indwelling Spirit. 
Lord, we pray that your spirit this morning would guide this preaching and this hearing, Lord, and that you would illuminate your word. Make it clear. Make it incisive. Make it penetrating and powerful in each of our hearts, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So as we take in this conversation between Yahweh and Moses, we can divide it into two parts with the second part resulting in the climax we just read in verse 14. And so dividing it in two parts, we get the anger of God, uh, by the way, which is a very real category, okay? A very real category. God is righteously angry with sin. And let me say this more specifically. God is righteously angry with sinners, The Bible says that the wrath of God, Jesus says, John 3, the wrath of God abides on those who do not know God through Christ. Those who do not believe in the Son of God, the wrath of God abides on them. But we see here the anger of God, verses 7 to 10, and then secondly, the appeal of Moses, verses 11 to 14. And by the way, I've said this many times, I simply do not understand how you can have any understanding of the gospel of God's grace in Christ without a rich, robust understanding of God's wrath. There simply is no gospel. There is no good news apart from the message of God's wrath against sinners. Who is this Christ to whom we flee? If there is no wrath to flee, if there is no wrath to be saved from. It is sad to me that so many Christians sit in seeker-sensitive churches across our land and hear absolutely nothing about God's wrath towards sinners. How tragic, how sad. So we'll look this morning at the anger of God, verses 7 to 10, and the appeal of Moses, verses 11 to 14. So let's go first to the anger of God, verses 7 to 10. Let's look there. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, them in order that I may make a great nation of you. We know that the Lord knows all things and sees all things. Right? This is one of the most basic truths about God. If you sort of lift, list the ones, we recognize that God is omniscient. He knows all things and he is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. He's also omnipresent. He's always there. So we know that what is happening at the base of the mountain, uh, God is very much aware of it. So Moses doesn't have to wait to find out what's going on down below at the base of the mountain. God simply tells him, by the way, Moses, remember he's got those tablets. He's going down. Let me tell you what's going on down there with your people. God begins 
by disassociating himself from his people. We need to see that. It's really important here. God begins this message to Moses by literally disassociating Israel and himself. They have utterly failed to function as his holy people. They have rebelliously replaced him with an idol. They have willingly broken the covenant. So here we get the language of separation. As the Lord describes the people to Moses, you have to see this. You have to notice it. It heightens the seriousness of what's going on. Verse 7, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. This is not the Lord shooting darts at Moses. This is the Lord disassociating himself from Israel. And what we need to understand is that this disassociation is a movement towards catastrophic judgment. It shows the seriousness and extent of God's wrath. It shows the reality of God's wrath. In his holy justice, God is righteously angry with their sin. Now, we need to understand that one of the reasons we struggle, and I've said this before, one of the reasons we struggle with this notion of God being angry is because the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God, as we read. We know what it looks like when we get angry. We know what it looks like when other people get angry. You know, the facial expressions, the raised voice, the sharp words the snarling, the grinding of the teeth, the raising of the eyes, all that goes into it. And as we see in our world, the violence that often ensues, typically related to one's own personal vindication and offense or one's own discomfort or dissatisfaction with whatever has happened. We know how ugly human anger is how ugly human anger can be. So when we go and ascribe anger to Yahweh, to God, it just seems not to fit. Whoa, hold on a second. God and what I've seen when people get angry, those just don't go well together. And that's true. Of course they don't. That's not what it means when it says that God is angry. But the Bible expresses it in human language, in anthropomorphic language. It expresses God's holy indignation, his holy justice, his righteousness, his his exacting of judgment on rebels. And we all recognize that this is a good thing when we think about God's judgment on Hitler or Someone like that. He always uh, gets used as the example, rightly so. But when we think of an individual like a Hitler, we of course think, yes, we want God to be righteously indignant and angry against sin. Hell cannot burn hot enough for Hitler, we think. But we need to understand that this applies to all rebel sinners, all who hate God's glory and replace him with other gods. God is righteously angry with sin. 
So how does God assess the sin of the Israelites? And here we get some descriptors. So let's dissect this. Let's peel this apart. How does the Lord assess what they have done? Well, first he says in verse 7 that they have corrupted themselves. They have corrupted themselves. They have brought ruin and spoiling to themselves is the imagery. They, they, it, it's, you imagine a castle perfectly pristine and then all of a sudden it just, it just crumbles in on itself. Or think of some milk, a nice glass of milk, especially when you're thirsty and it's really cold and it's been in the fridge and you take it out, you just leave it there for a while. It's going to spoil or a nice ripe tomato you're about to slice up. And put on a sandwich with some mayonnaise, you know, salt and pepper and all that. And it just sits there and spoils. They have brought ruin and spoiling upon themselves. This is the same verb, this is important, used in the time of Noah. In chapter 6, verse 12. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. In other words, what we're finding here is that God is drawing a line from the golden calf incident all the way back to the flood. That's incredible. That God is viewing the golden calf incident in the way that he viewed the whole world at the time of the flood. There is a a direct line going back. This is a note of imminent destruction. By simply using this verb, it anticipates the cataclysmic destruction of something like the flood. Second, the Lord says in verse 8 that they have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have disobeyed God and they have done so without delay. As we talked about before, this is a rapid turning away from their covenant commitment fresh in their minds. This this commitment that they've made to the Lord has barely the syllables that I read to you earlier have barely come out of their mouths. And they have already turned aside. This is a quick rejection. And it warns us, it reminds us that we can, we can literally be present in a service and God can touch our hearts and he can work in our lives and he can heal broken relationships. He can forgive sin. He can restore joy and we can walk right out of the door and go smack right in the mud of our sin, quickly turning away from the Lord. Third, God lays out the sin itself in the latter part of verse 8, where he describes what they've done. They made the idol, they worshiped it, they sacrificed to it, and they declared it to be the God who saved them. In other words, you could say that they have robbed the Lord of his glory. They have trampled on God's Glory. To use the words of Romans chapter 1, verse 23, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the image of a calf. Fourth, the Lord calls Israel a stiff necked people.
people. Do you see how this is, you can read through this too quickly and you miss how God is assessing the sin of the people. He calls them here a stiff-necked people, verse 9. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. So what does this mean? You read this a lot, especially in the Pentateuch and the the first five books of the Bible, we read this idea of being a stiff-necked people. Uh, we don't really have that imagery in our minds when we read that. We don't really understand what that means. Well, it is a livestock imagery. It is the picture, so this is a, this is a farm picture. It is a picture of a beast of burden on the farm who will not lower its neck to receive the yoke. This is an animal whose function And purpose is to receive a yoke and therefore be useful in plowing and working within the field. And what we have here is an animal that will not receive the yoke. It is a stiff-necked beast, worthless on a farm. It is a picture of stubbornness. And unwillingness to follow. It is a picture of self-will and pride. And in that sense, it serves as a fitting picture of the unconverted. You know, it helps us to understand as we go out into the world and we share the gospel with people. And we give reasons why uh, you can trust the reliability of scripture. And reasons for the existence of God. And, and reasons why other philosophical worldviews do not stand up against Christianity. As we do our apologetics and we do our evangelism, it is important for us as Christians to keep in mind that we are ultimately not dealing, as you've heard me say many times, we are not ultimately dealing with the unconvinced, we are dealing with the stiff-necked. That is fundamentally what it means to be a sinner, is to have one's neck extended Firmly against the Lord and his purposes. It is also a warning to us who are Christians not to become stiff-necked in the way we live out our Christian lives. In the way we relate to the Lord, in the way we relate to his people, we too can become stiff-necked in our practices, in our propensities, in our habits, in our loves. We can become unuseful to the Lord because our neck is so stiff. So what what do we have here from God's perspective? Let's sum it up. Corruption on par with the flood. A rapid rebellion and infidelity. A form of adultery. A trampling on God's glory. And a prideful, self-willful rejection of God's authority over them. That's serious. Often, there is a great gap between God's assessment And our assessment when it comes to our sin. As I said before, often a great gap. And and one of the great necessities of us growing in the Lord, of us moving beyond where we are right now, is that we begin to assess our sin the way God sees it. 
Not patting ourselves on our back and presuming on God's grace and treating ourselves with just so much gentleness, but rather going to the Lord's word and letting him penetrate the heart like a surgeon and show us through his word the awfulness of our sin. That's how we grow beyond that sin. Keep petting it. Keep seeing it as small and keep going to bed with it every night and waking up with it every morning and having it there with you at breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It will remain as long as you see it as a tiny, insignificant thing. God's assessment of Israel's sin probably, well, certainly, was far deeper than they would even go on to imagine. So what will God do in the face of this sin? How does he intend to respond to this grievous sin? Well, verse 10 tells us, Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. God's stated intention on the surface. Now this is is a really interesting verse here. God's stated intention on the surface is to destroy Israel and rebuild it through Moses. It's dramatic. If you've you've read from Genesis 1-1 up to this point, it's mind-blowing, this sentence, this verse. To destroy Israel and rebuild it through Moses, to let Israel. His righteous anger burn over into their mass destruction. In other words, Moses will become like a new Abraham. Genesis 12, 2, and I will make of you a great nation. We'll we'll rewind all the way back to Genesis 12, and now it will be Moses at the center, also a descendant of Abraham, but it will be Moses who will now become the head of the people, the patriarch. However, This is only God's intention on the surface. We need to see that. This is really important that we understand what's going on here. This is only God's intention on the surface. We need to keep in mind that the golden calf incident did not take God by surprise. By the way, no sin of Israel in its history, including the rejection of the Christ, took God by surprise. And that's what we read in Romans 9. God's plan was unfolding. None of this took God by surprise. He saw it coming when he purposed to save his people. He knew that they would quickly turn away. In all the things God has been doing, he knows the golden calf is coming. So in order to understand what's going on here, we have to look below the surface, or better yet, we have to look at the opening words. And here's what they say. Now therefore... Let me alone that my wrath may burn. Important little phrase. Let me alone. Why is that so important? Well, God is here essentially inviting Moses to act as Israel's mediator, to act as Israel's intercessor. In other words, rather than the Lord simply lay out This is what I'm going to do. He begins by saying, in essence, unless you intervene, Moses, and have something to say about this, 
and let me alone, I will do this to the people. God is here opening a way. He is inviting Moses to act as Israel's mediator. With these words, let me alone, he is letting Moses know that he will listen and respond to his efforts to intercede for the people. In other words, God will graciously spare the people through the mediator. That was always God's plan, by the way. The golden calf incident is important in God's plan. That's how sovereign God is. And once again, we see God's sovereignty and human responsibility and the way in which these two things go together. It was God's plan that Pharaoh would do what he did, and yet Pharaoh was responsible for what he did. It was part of God's plan that the golden calf incident would occur, and yet the Israelites are responsible for what they did. None of this took God off guard. It is all part of his plan. Now he will graciously spare them through their mediator. And that brings us to our second point this morning, and that is the appeal of Moses. So we've seen the anger of God, verses 7 to 10, his righteous indignation, a real category for us to reckon with as Christians, a category without which we cannot understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then we come now to the appeal of Moses. So how does Moses respond to this tantalizing proposal that the Lord gives him? I mean, on a human level, it is very appealing, isn't it? We all can say, yeah, to that, because it is. On a human level, it is very appealing. Moses has been the deliverer, and now God is offering him the opportunity to be a new patriarch for this great nation, somewhat of a promotion, certainly something to be added to his CV or his resume. Deliverer and now patriarch. This would have been, of course, quite appealing to Moses. And the people are a headache to Moses. I mean, they've thrashed him multiple times. And we've seen in verse 1 that they are thrashing him even subtly, though maybe not so subtle, as they are saying, this man Moses, this fellow, this guy up there, he's still up there. And they've already complained against him on the way to Mount Sinai. So this is appealing for Moses on a human level in a variety of ways. So how does Moses respond? To this proposal. Look at verses 11 to 14. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. It's as simple as that. The first thing we need to recognize is that this is not the response of selfish ambition or pride. You just need to get that down there. 
Make that clear. This is not the response of selfish ambition or pride. This is the response of love for others and even more, a love for God's glory. This is a fixation on God's plan. Self for Moses has been eclipsed. And that is the way of a Christian. Self for the Christian has been eclipsed. This functions as a test for Moses. And as a means of God providing grace for his people that points to Christ. We could understand that this is one of those high points in pointing us to Christ in the Old Testament. As we see God is going to destroy the people. And the mediator, the intercessor, the go-between comes between God and the people. Comes between God's wrath and the people. Moses did not bear God's wrath. Jesus did. He is the mediator. And as we come to celebrate Christmas this year, we need to consider this great truth about Christ. He came to be that. That's what Christmas is about. He came to be that by acting as priest to offer his very own self as sacrifice so that we could be forgiven of sin And we could be removed from under God's wrath. That is why Christ came. That is who he is. And as we've discussed before with reference to Moses and the high priest. All of this mediation, representation and intercession is meant to highlight this future work of Christ. And so we read in 1 Timothy 2.5. For there is one God. And there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Or 1 John 2, 1. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he always stands to make intercession for us. So we confess our sins. When we sin, as as I heard growing up, we keep a short list. We confess our sins. And we know that when we do, God hears us in his grace and he hears us. Through the mediator. He hears us through our high priest. Through the one who is truly Moses. The one to whom Moses was pointing. So this entire scene serves as an avenue of grace. And an anticipation of Christ. And in that sense. Even this great sin had a significant role in the history of redemption and God's revealing of his truth and of his saving plan. God turns all things for good for those who love him. God can turn all the things in our lives to good in the end. So what does Moses say to the Lord? Well, the short answer is that he asked God not to carry out His stated intention, his stated proposal. In fact, he does not ask God. He tells God, no, no, God, don't do it. Don't do this thing. He goes to God boldly as an intercessor. And notice the language of association here. He comes intimately to God. But Moses implored the Lord his God. You get this disassociative language with Israel, but you get the language of association with Moses. But Moses implored the Lord his God. 
And most importantly, we need to see that his appeal to God is entirely concerned with God. What Moses does not do is tell God how great some of the people down at the bottom of the mountain are. He doesn't do that. There's not an inkling of that. He doesn't say, God, it's been a while. You know, I mean, it's been a while. It's not that. He doesn't appeal to anything meritorious or good or noteworthy or positive in the people. He is entirely concerned with God himself. The focus is not on what the people deserve. They only deserve wrath, as we do. But on who God is, his character, and his attributes. And what we find here is that Moses, the intercessor, the mediator, appeals to four things about God. And this is where we're going to finish this morning. He appeals to four things about God. And here they are if you want to list them. And then we'll talk about each of them briefly. His salvation his glory, his mercy, and his promise. And I can't help but to think that as we conceive of Christ as the mediator and the intercessor, and by the way, we are not meant to understand that the Son shields us from the Father or protects us from the Father. Remember, it is the Father who sent the Son to save us, right? The whole Trinity is involved in our salvation. But what I understand is that as Jesus is functioning as our high priest, this is what's in view. God's salvation, God's glory, God's mercy, and God's promise. So let's look at each of these. First, God's salvation. Verse 11, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Now with the words, your people. Notice, God said, your people, Moses. And Moses turns around to God and says, no, no, no. They're your people, God. They are your people. He reassociates. This is what a mediator does. He reassociates God with his people. Now, keep in mind, God is using Moses to do this, right? We're not meant to understand, oh, Moses is really the savior here because he, he shielded the people. No, no, God is using Moses to do this. And he does this on the basis of God's redemption. Your people whom you brought out with great power and a mighty hand. Not just your people, but your people whom you rescued. Your people whom you saved. Your people whom you redeemed. And I I find it funny here, interesting, that Moses brings God back to the burning bush. In chapter 3, verse 10. Come, this is the Lord speaking to Moses. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. In other words, Moses, it is as though Moses is saying, Lord, do you remember that you called me to, to go get your people? That's the way this all started. They are indeed your people whom you saved. Second, God's glory His name, his reputation. Verse 12, why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Moses is concerned with God's glorious reputation among the Egyptians. He does not want the Egyptians to have any space to defame God. In other words, Moses is appealing into God's already stated will. 
We read this back in chapter 7, verse 5. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. In other words, Moses is saying, Lord, your whole point in saving your people was to magnify your glory as the mighty redeemer among the Egyptians. What will they say of you now? If you just thrash your people out here in the wilderness and leave a bunch of corpses on the ground. No, no, no. Your name, oh God. Your glory. Your reputation. The weight of who you are. Third, we see God's mercy. At the end of verse 12, Moses calls on God to turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. In other words... Moses recognizes that God is merciful and that he can indeed show mercy to his people even in this instance. God can do this and he can do it on account of his character. So Moses appeals into God's mercy. He appeals into God as Savior. He appeals into God's glory. He appeals into God's mercy. And then finally, he appeals to God's promise in verse 13. In other words, he appeals to God's faithfulness. Do you see that? Verse 13, Moses refers back to God's promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. And notice here, this is interesting. Moses does not say, remember Your promise, remember your covenant to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He could have said that. That's typical language. He says to Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. He uses the same language that is used for the nation. He wants the nation to be viewed as the mediator, as the intercessor. He wants the nation to be viewed in the loins of Jacob, as it were. Abraham, Isaac. And Jacob, God made this promise and he swore by himself. God is faithful and true. He cannot lie. He keeps covenant. He keeps steadfast love and faithfulness. God is faithful and true and he will not break his promises. He must build this nation. Besides, we recognize that God has already declared that his promises to Abraham will involve a future ruler from Judah. So we've already stepped out from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. By the time you get to the end of Genesis, you've already stepped down to the next rung. You can't just obliterate everything all the way up to Jacob and then start again with Moses. He's one of the descendants of Levi. But God made a promise at the end of Genesis. In Genesis 49, he said, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the people's. It's the image of the future descendant of Judah who will rule over Israel. And as the next verse says, will bring in prosperity to the land, to the people. And it is the image of one who stands as the Lord of all and the king of the nations and to whom the nations bow in allegiance. That's part of the promise. In fact, that is the ultimate fulfillment of the promise couched in Genesis 49 in the loins of Judah one of the sons of Israel, one of the sons of 
Jacob. So what is the effect of this intercession, of this mediation? It's stated so quickly and so simply and so definitively in verse 14. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. In other words, God said, okay, enough said. He said, okay. He said, yes. This is the definitive way in which God responds to the work of Christ on our behalf. Yes, forgiven. Yes, adopted. Yes, indwelt. Yes, glorified. Just not yet. All of these things sealed for us at the cross. Grace, grace, and more grace. God will punish. We're going to see that next week. But he will spare the nation. He will listen to the mediator. And I want to finish on this note. As we think about this idea of mediation and intercession, I want to bring this down to the ground level for each of us. As we think about the Christian life, as we think about our own role as children of God, as little Christs, as Christians, as those who are little temples and members of the household of God, members of Christ's body. I want you to consider your role as an intercessor. Right? We know that Moses here points to Christ. Ultimately, Christ is the intercessor. But we all function as little intercessors too. Little intercessors praying for other people. And here I think we get some instruction on what it looks like to intercede for others. And simply put, it is praying away from self and praying into God's will, God's character, and God's glory. What if so much of our intercessory prayer is really just about self? And that's the problem. Begin praying with self out of the way and praying into who God is as the gracious king. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning that you have given us. And we thank you, God, for these verses which were written thousands of years ago. And Lord, they have been faithfully transmitted through history by your people of various times and under various circumstances And in many, many, many manuscripts compared with one another, we have here before us the very word of God. We praise you, Lord, that you have given us this great treasure. Lord, we pray that we would respond to your word today, not with foolish ears and foolish hearts and foolish feet and hands, but Lord, that we would be wise in hearing and obeying and submitting and doing. Lord, we pray that where our, hearts are, where our hearts are like a stiff-necked beast, Lord, that you would soften those muscles, that you would massage those muscles down from the selfishness and pride that often characterizes our hearts. And Lord, in your grace, that you would make us malleable in your righteous, perfect 
fatherly hands. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.